you will open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Before I pray, I'll just thank again the consistory, the the elders for the opportunity of of being here again in your midst to uh, preach and have fellowship with you. I have great affection for this congregation and pray for you regularly. Also, um, thank you for your prayers and support for Greenville Seminary and sparing your pastor to work on our board. We're very happy for that relationship we have with the RCUS, but also then particularly with your pastor and this uh, congregation. Of course, it's rough to preach in Travis's pulpit because I feel like a midget. <laughs> Let's pray. Almighty, glorious God in heaven, you are excellent and splendid, clothed in all majesty and power, and unto you belongs all praise and adoration. But you, holy and, and transcendent God, have stooped to come to us, and particularly, Lord, uh, through the salvation of your Son and the work of the Spirit. And you speak to us, Lord, from your word. And we pray now that the Spirit who inspired these words would illumine our understanding. And above that, would grant great unction and power uh, in uh, their proclamation. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Read Acts 2, uh, verses 1 through 21. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude, multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language? in which we were born. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Lib Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we heard them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Other, others mocking said, They're full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. 
and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, I hope that some of you uh, young people here today uh, study, well, in my day we called it civics. Maybe today, I think my daughter told me it's called government. A lot of students don't study this any longer. But you know, it's very important um, because we learn about our country, we learn about its history, but also in this course, we are to be exposed to some very important foundational documents, particularly the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. Now these are historic documents and it is good for us just from a historical perspective to uh, know them and know what they say. But they're much more important than just being historical documents, although they are one-time historical activities July 4th, 1776, the Declaration of Independence was signed, and March 4th, in 1789, the Constitution was finally ratified as the, the means of the union of the states that joined into the union upon that Constitution. So those were historical events, weren't they? But we ought not just to think about them as historical events, because they're historical events that have ramifications for who we are today. And ramifications that we still live regardless of what's happening in the greatest country in the world. Ramifications that people want to come into our country, yes, in any way possible, simply because there's no better place to live. And what we often don't think about is all of these things are simply based upon those foundation stones, irrepeatable acts, Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, but acts with ongoing ramifications. Now, I use that as an analogy for Pentecost. Pentecost was a once and for all historical event. And you people are better instructed than, than many in the Presbyterian circles because each year you consider uh, Pentecost and, and give thanks to God for it and, and have a grasp, I hope, of, of what it's all about. And it's important that we note that Pentecost was a once, a one-time-in-history event that's not to be repeated. But that, in fact, the realities of what God did at Pentecost are the very things that make the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we're thinking about missions in the Mission Fest, uh, I thought that it would be useful for us to think about the relationship of Pentecost to missions. In the first sermon this morning, we're going to look at that in, in a more general way. And then after lunch today, we'll look at it in a more specific way. But this will be the general theme of the day, Pentecost and missions. And we start here then with the historical event of Pentecost. Pentecost took place 50 days after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts picks up a summary of Christ after he was raised from the dead. He met 40 days with his apostles, uh, particularly instructing them in uh, 
uh, truth and in their responsibilities and given them this promise of the Holy Spirit who would be poured out upon the church. At the end of those 40 days, our Savior in their sight ascended into heaven where he's now executing uh, the operation of his church as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Ten days later, on Pentecost, he then, having received the power and authority, poured out his Holy Spirit on the church. On that day that historically was Pentecost um, in the life of the Jews and for us, a historical reality, a trust in our lives individually and in the church. What I want to do in this first message then is show you that um, on the basis of Pentecost, uh, God has um, constituted the church and given the church the pledge and power of worldwide missions. Pentecost, God constitutes the church and gives her the pledge and power for worldwide missions. And I want to unpack that sentence under three headings, simple things. We're going to look at the fact of Pentecost, the result of Pentecost, and the significance of Pentecost. Well, the fact of Pentecost is uh, laid out for us uh, by the Holy Spirit uh, in um, verses 1 and 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Verse 3, then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and each tongue set upon each of them. Now, why Pentecost, the historical day? Well, you will remember, I know, that uh, God gave the Old Covenant Church three important religious festivals. Um, so there was um, um, the, the uh, Supper of Passover to commemorate the deliverance from Egypt. There was Pentecost, and then there was the Festival of Booths. Now, most of you being farmers, you will appreciate uh, that these festivals were all tied into the uh, farming season. Uh, so uh, the Passover um, took place uh, right at the beginning of uh, the barley harvest. And it was to commemorate then God's deliverance and provision for his people. And on the last day of that festival, a barley loaf was waved. And that actually was a type uh, anticipation of the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. He was raised on the morning of the waving of the barley loaf. Fifty days later, then, was the festival of Pentecost. And uh, Pentecost was the harvest festival uh, as the wheat harvest begins. And once again, it's a pledge of harvest. But it's something else. You see, Pentecost is when the church was gathered then at Mount Sinai. Fifty days after they left Egypt, God assembles them at the foot of the mountain and there constitutes them, in a sense, the Old Testament church and promised this gospel harvest through his church. And so that was all planned by the wise God to take place then in the history of, uh, of the New Testament church. And then the uh, festival of booths, which took place then a few months later, 
uh, commemorates God's dwelling with his people, dedication of the temple. And again, reflects there, as our Savior does in John chapter 7, on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But Pentecost was planned by God from eternity as a historical event in the life of the Old Testament church to signify and be fulfilled by what he did 50 days after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the occasion of this event. The facts then are quite clear that the church was gathered together either in that upper room, although they possibly have grown in number as converts from Galilee would have come down, perhaps in the temple at this time uh, because of the size of the group. And you'll notice that the implication is they were praying. It's very important, you know, God's providence connected with our confession reading today. Because the so idea of their being together at one place is established in chapter 1. They went to the upper room, they began to pray, and they began to pray for what? They were praying for the promise of the Holy Spirit that Jesus had given them. What were they doing when the Spirit was poured out? Sitting around drinking coffee and having buns? Uh, no. They were pleading with God to fulfill the promise, just as Daniel does in Daniel chapter 9 when he reads um, the people will now be restored after 70 years of captivity. He doesn't pack his bags. He goes on his knees. He says, God, you've promised this. Granted, this is what the church was doing. We're going to come back to that this afternoon because it's, it's one of the great absences in our life today particularly as Reformed Christians. So they're there praying for the Spirit to be poured out, and it's as they are praying that we're told that the Spirit now is poured out upon them, and there's two physical signs of this. The first is they hear this mighty rushing wind. Now, in the Bible, the work of the wind, the power of the wind, is indeed a picture of the Holy Spirit. What does Jesus tell Nicodemus? The Spirit is like the wind, comes sovereignly, but the Spirit will come. Um, and then the loud wind was God's megaphone to be gathering then all these pilgrims. I didn't mention this, but Pentecost, this is why all these people were in Jerusalem, because they came up for the three festivals. From around the world they were there, and they're hearing this roaring wind. That's so why I think it was probably at the temple. And they gather there where there, many of them already were. What in the world is going on? And then the people see what's described as tongues of fire. The best way children to think about tongues of fire is to think about the, the flickering fire on the end of a candle as a candle burns. That looks like a tongue, doesn't it? And so this... Visual image God gave to the church came down upon every single person who was gathered in the prayer meeting. And again, fire is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. John prophesied that the Savior would, would uh, John baptized with water, the Savior would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And there's a lot of significance to this beyond what we're going to look at. This is the second Mount Sinai. As we'll see in a moment, the New Testament church is constituted. When the Old Testament church was constituted at Mount Sinai, there was wind and fire. Uh, and then uh, the fire is uh, purified. And here is God's pledge that he's going to sanctify his saints. But notice tongues, and this fits into what we're seeing here. Because this is also the pledge of worldwide missions.
And so that is what the Holy Spirit describes to us took place uh, in, in and on and among these people. On that Pentecost morning, nine o'clock in the morning as they're gathered uh, around the temple and are praying. Well, those are the facts. Now, what's the result? Well, in verse 4 through 12, we read of the result. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together, and they were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And then they were all amazed and marveled, and saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? There's this list of all these nations that were gathered there at Pentecost. It concludes in verse 12, they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Well, the twofold result recorded for us here. In the first place, all of the believers who were gathered in the prayer meeting were personally filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important that you understand this in the history of redemption. The Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament, regenerating, sanctifying His people, and giving special anointing to special people for special task. But the Holy Spirit, of course, was not the Spirit of Christ, as He's called in the New Testament, because Christ was not yet. Christ is the name for the Son of God incarnate. So the Holy Spirit operated in a sense, yes, in the hearts, but not dwelling in the hearts. Now here's the major step forward. What happened on that day is the Holy Spirit now personally indwelt every single believer in that prayer meeting. The Spirit of the triune God indwelling each of them, indwelling his church, and that means indwelling you and me here today if we're regenerate. Because in the new covenant, when the Holy Spirit regenerates, creates faith, changes our heart, he then comes into us personally as the spirit of the triune God. And the triune God dwells in us. We'll come back to that. But this relation now of this Pentecost to the former Pentecost is this now is the formal inauguration of the New Testament church. So if you ask the question, and we just asked the candidate this question at Presbyterian's past week classes, so when did the church begin? Well, he, he said at Pentecost, and that's a yes and no answer. <laughs> it, it's true the New Testament church began at Pentecost, which is what we're emphasizing here. But the church began with the division of the seed of woman. And the visible church uh, under the covenant with Abraham and then constituted such at Mount Sinai. But the new covenant church now, who li we live in all the fulfillment of all that was prophesied about the church, then began on the day of Pentecost. So they're being filled with the Spirit. So the first result is then that God Christ now by His Spirit constitutes the New Testament church. Now the second result is he basically uh, implies the mission and power 
for the New Testament church. Thus again, the significance of Pentecost, it was the pledge of a harvest. Now, why in the world does this particular glorious miracle take place? And how all again these things fit together in the wisdom of God. That in Pentecost now, Jews from all over the world were in Jerusalem. And proselytes, who were Gentiles who had been formally converted around the world, from around the world. And the God-fearers, who were those who believed in the one true God and worshipped in the synagogue, but had not yet been formally by a, a proper profession or ceremony incorporated into the congregation. You see what God's doing here. He's gathered these people. They come because of the sound. And then all these people, and basically what you have here is nations north, south, east, west, from around the world, and they're hearing the proclamation of the mighty works of God. This probably would have been a rehearsal of the glories of, of the incarnate Son and His crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, in their own language. And it says they first were complexed, and then they were amazed. And now they're asking the question, what is going on? Well, we'll look at what's going on in just a moment, but what God is doing now is fulfilling the promise made in Genesis chapter 10. Two things. In the first place, Japheth, the Gentiles, are now being incorporated into the tent of Shem, as God promises Noah. And now, uh, as Isaiah will say, you know, rip up your tents and expand the cords now because the nations are coming in. And even in God's grace, cursed nations from Genesis 10 were gathered that day as well in Pentecost. Uh, and so, uh, a fulfillment of prophecy, but also the overturn of the curse. Because in Genesis chapter 11, what happens? The nations rise up in rebellion against God. We'll not have God reign over us. And so they want to build a tower up unto heaven. What does God do? He comes down and he um, scatters them and um, takes away their common language. And so the curse of judgment was no longer understanding each other. The curse of judgment was your tongue to another person would be Babel. It would mean nothing. But suddenly now, all of these languages are hearing the gospel in their own tongue. Now, I don't know how that happened. Maybe we'll find out. Uh, my, my best theory is that they divided into groups, and they had 12 groups <laughs> with 12 apostles, each talking to that one particular group. Whether it was both a group, uh, uh, a miracle of speech and hearing, I don't know. But all I know is, is that by this declaration, the gospel now was preached in the language of the world, languages of the world, and what's God doing? He's saying now the church is breaking out of the narrow confines where I've placed her. And now, because the kingdoms belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, the church shall go unto the ends of the earth. And so the result of Pentecost was um, the inauguration, the constitution of the New Testament church, and the pledge and power for the expansion of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you following me? 
We've got the fact of Pentecost and the result. And then we come to the heart of this passage, and that is the significance. And that is uh, revealed for us in Peter's sermon. Now, the background of that sermon was as if people were amazed and perplexed, um, wanting to know what happened. There were mockers there. There's always mockers there. You know that. When the gospel's preached, there's going to be mockers there. There's probably some mockers here this morning. And there were mockers there. And uh, so they said, oh, these people are just drunk, which really explained everything, didn't it? That's why you could understand people speaking your own language, because they were drunk. Uh, but Peter simply used a little sarcasm and says, look, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Obviously, nobody's had time to get drunk. What's going on here? So he answers. He asks and he answers the question. And he uh, says, let this be known to you in verse 14. And heed my words, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the ninth hour. But this, what's happening, is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And now in verses 17 to 21, he quotes the prophecy from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. Now this is a prophecy that has to do with the days of Christ. We see that in verse 17. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God. Don't be confused by modern teachers. The last days to not refer to the days right before Christ comes a second time. We know from places like this prophecy that the last days is a New Testament age. The last days are the time from Christ's ascension to his final coming at the end of the age. And so uh, the last days are simply the age of the New Testament church. All right, she's been constituted now by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit inaugurating the last days. Now what's going on, asked Peter. Well, Joel tells us what's going to come to pass in the last days. And then he refers by the prophecy to what they've just seen. I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And I love the fact that the Holy Spirit uses the word flesh here because it, uh, some modern Bibles say mankind. But it's getting to the fact that um, every type of person and not just natural, but those who then have been totally depraved, which flesh also signifies in the Bible. All of those uh, classes of people now are going to receive the Holy Spirit in this way that I described that was rare in the Old Testament. And then he identifies all these classes of people that are going to receive the Holy Spirit. And so he says, uh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, men servants and maid servants. I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. On every sex, he says, men and women. On all ages, from the youngest to the oldest. And all social classes, yes, including even bond slaves and bond servants. In other words, everyone who is in the new covenant church inaugurated by the Holy Spirit is going to have the personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So what happened on that day on those people in Pentecost and what happened in a minor way when the gospel goes to the Samaritans in um, Acts 8 and to the Gentiles in Acts 10 is now what has happened to every one of you who's been born again. I want this to sink in. When the Holy Spirit changed your heart and brought you in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, I've said it already, the Spirit of Christ 
the spirit of the holy triune God has entered into your soul and shall never leave. In this life, you have the permanent filling of the Holy Spirit. Again, this is where Pentecostals go wrong. The Pentecostal event is not something that is repeated, as I've already said, but its reality continues. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. You can have no more of the Holy Spirit than you have from the moment you were converted. And when the Bible tells you to be filled with the Spirit, what it's telling you to do is to live in dependence upon the reality of the Spirit who is in you. And don't by sin quench Him or grieve Him. But live your life, as we heard earlier, in constant dependence upon the Spirit of the risen Christ, the power of the risen Christ at work in you for every single thing that God calls you to do as a person, as a family, as a congregation. Now, the reality of this permanent filling is further expressed in what he says they will do. He says, your sons and daughters will prophesy, young men see visions, your old men dream dreams, uh, and the men servants and maid servants, this is verses 17 and 18, shall prophesy. Now, does this mean then that because the Spirit has been poured out upon the church that all people are going to uh, be prophets and that prophets prophesy and continues today after the death of the apostles? Well, no, for two reasons. In the first place, we know from places like 1 Corinthians 12 that there were only some prophets in the church and only some in the church that had visions or dreams or whatever. And that was necessary for the New Testament church. But more importantly, what Joel says, it picks up on something that um, Moses says uh, in Numbers chapter 11. Now, Numbers chapter 11, the people have manna, and they're fed up with God's provision. And so they, again, a second time now in their history, start lusting for meat and quail. And Moses is very frustrated and he tells, he said, God just killed me. I, I, I can't bear these people any longer. And God says, I'm going to give you help. So God promises him 70 elders to come alongside him and bear the burden with him. And these elders then would be designated by, as the 70 men were selected, they would go outside the camp with Moses. And God said, I'm going to take the spirit that's upon you and put him on them and what? They shall prophesy. But it says only one time. Two men, for some reason, were delayed inside the camp. And they didn't get outside of the camp with the other 68. But in fact, they received the Holy Spirit, and they too were prophesying. And Joshua, jealous for um, the position of his uh, master, said to Moses, should I hinder them? Now, what we're looking for is Moses' response to that question. And uh, in verse 29 of Numbers 11, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets. Why? That the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Now, I hope you see the link between this and Joel. When Moses says, oh, that all were prophets, they weren't going to keep prophesying. But their prophesying was an evidence that they had received the Holy Spirit in a special manner. And what Joel is prophesying now is, is that on this day of Pentecost, as the Spirit is poured out and, and 
uh, people are hearing the gospel in, in their various tongues that the Spirit now has come and every individual believer is going to have the fullness of the Spirit beyond what even a prophet had. But prophesy because they now are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's glorious. That's the reality of Pentecost. It's not repeated. You, as I said, are regenerated. You're filled with the Spirit. You live in the power of the Spirit. The church is living in the power of the Spirit. We live in the power of Pentecost, not a repeated Pentecost, though, in its reality. But there's also a note of judgment here that we must take heed of. Because then he goes on in verse 19. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now Joel turns back and prophesies judgment. Now, this language, I'll give you a technical word, is called eschatological language, judgment. So when he says, the wonders in heaven, signs, blood, and fire vapors, well, this is used throughout the Old Testament to talk about judgment of the Babylonians and of others of God's enemies. It's quoted then in Matthew chapter 24. Now, I think this was particularly first fulfilled on the cross when there was the supernatural eclipse. And not only is God then showing his punishing of his son, but he's proclaiming then judgment on all who would reject the son. But it comes to its uh, first real fulfillment in the destruction of the temple, and that's the destruction of the old covenant people. And so then Matthew, in Matthew 24, uses this language. It's not language of something that's going to take place only in the future. No, it describes the cataclysmic events of the tearing down of all the old covenant because it's now been fulfilled in the new covenant. Now, through history, we know that God has periodically visited mankind or some portion of mankind uh, since the days of Pentecost with temporal judgment. We know there'll be the final fulfillment, though, of these words when Christ returns. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you are living in a very dangerous, sitting in a very dangerous place, living in a very dangerous world. If you're here as a hypocrite, and you're claiming to be part of the people of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and in fact, your life shows that you're not converted, maybe the people around you don't know that, but you know it, and you're living in the midst of a holy people, and do you see what God says he does to those that um, besmear his holiness? He brings judgment on them. Or perhaps you're visiting today, and you've entered into the midst of the holy people. And you know, the Holy Spirit wants you to understand that if you're today are not resting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, this is what he's doing in your life now and what God will do in your life forever in hell. But then we have to look at the last verse. God never just pronounces judgment without grace. If you're, some of you read through the Bible regularly and you get into the prophets, isn't that amazing? Almost every time God pronounces judgment on, on these apostate people, Israel and Judah, he turns around in the same chapter and offers them grace. And here's one of the most wonderful promises in the Bible in verse 21. It shall come to pass. Here's this judgment of God. 
It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. See, God wants you to hear this morning uh, the warning if you're a hypocrite or unconverted. Uh, what, what will happen to you if you remain in that state? But then he wants you to know he's not telling you that simply to be mean. No, he's like the physician who, if it doesn't tell you you've got this problem, not dealt with will kill you, but dealt with you will be saved. God wants you to understand that right now, if you're not a Christian, you're under his wrath and condemnation. And then he says, you hear him? Do you hear what he says to you this day, my friend, my unconverted friend? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Our Savior, again, pronouncing judgment on um, the cities that rejected him and then reflects on the sovereignty of God and salvation, throws his arms wide open and then says, come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That's what he's saying right now to any of you this morning who has come to a sense and awareness that we'll talk about this afternoon that you're not in Christ and you cry out, what shall I do? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and God shall save you. See, that's what's promised in Pentecost. That's the significance. The church is now the church of the Spirit of God. God dwells in our midst individually. He's constituted the new covenant church. He has given us this pledge of worldwide conversions in fact, the kingdom of Christ extending to the end of the earth. And he's shown us that in him is all the power that we need. All the power. This is what Pentecost means for missions, what it means for you, my friend. As you see here this morning as a Christian, I just want you to realize this is the spirit of God who indwells in you. And God will never leave you or forsake you because he gave you his spirit. And I want you to know it's insignificant that we today, outside of the gift of, of preaching, which the New Testament calls prophesying, that goes with the office, we don't have these extraordinary gifts because what you have is so much superior. You have the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead operating in your life. You have the Holy Spirit of the triune God in you to sanctify you and to keep you and to preserve you and to bring you safely to the end. And as a congregation, then, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And that means that in the Holy Spirit, you have every resource that you need to fulfill the Great Commission within your own sphere of responsibility as God gives it to you. Live, then, in the reality of what happened on that day, but what you possess in our day. Let's pray.